If you haven't done so, grab your Bibles, turn to John 19. That's where we're going to spend our time. And while you're finding your place, I, I want to read a few entries from a journal written by a man in the 1700s. And here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to see if there's anything familiar in how this man writes, in what he believes about his own Christian life and, and what is shaping his understanding of who he is and who God is. Is there anything familiar in it? Okay, so let me read. I'm just gonna read five or six of them. September 18th, 1738. O Lord, enable me by thy grace to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth, vanity, and wickedness to make use of thy gifts to the honor of thy name, to lead a new life in thy faith, fear, and love, and finally, to obtain everlasting life. 19 years later, January 1st, 1757, Almighty God, forgive me that I have misspent the time past. Enable me from this instant to amend my life according to thy holy word. Four years after that, March 22nd, 1761. I have resolved, I hope not presumptuously, till I am afraid to resolve again, yet hoping in God, I steadfastly purpose to lead a new life. Oh God, enable me. For Jesus Christ's sake, my purpose is to avoid idleness, to regulate my sleep as to length and choice of hours, to keep a journal, to worship God more diligently, to go to church every Sunday, to study the scriptures, to read a certain portion every week. September 18th. 1764, I have now spent 55 years in resolving, having from the earliest time almost that I remember been forming schemes of a better life, I have done nothing. Oh God, grant me to resolve aright and to keep my resolutions. I resolve to rise early, no later than six if I can. April 7th, 1765, I purpose to rise at eight. Because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie till two. <laughs> April 10th, 1775, this is 10 years even later still. When I look back upon resolutions of improvement and amendment which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try in hope of the help of God. I was written by a man named Samuel Johnson who uh, was a literary giant. He was a genius. His, his most famous accomplishment was authoring a dictionary of the English Bible. And that dictionary was the preeminent dictionary for about 150 years in the English-speaking world. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. And he was a committed Anglican. He was a Christian man. He had put his faith in Jesus. But I wonder if what you heard in that was what I heard. A man who was burdened, exhausted, frustrated, discouraged, and maybe filled with just a little bit of fear. He tried and he tried to resolve. I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna read my Bible. I'm gonna get up at eight. I'm gonna get up at six. And he, every time he came back to his journal, 55 years and more, he would sit down and realize, I have broken every commitment I've made. Oh God, help me that I might obtain everlasting life, he says. I wonder if there's something familiar in that to you. This sense of frustration and exhaustion of trying to change, trying to live a new life, and then all of a sudden, years later, looking back and thinking, I've done nothing. What have I done? Here's what I think is missing from the, the life of a man like Samuel Johnson 
and, his, and the theology, the thoughts about God that he has. And perhaps here's what might be missing. If that's your experience, if that's what you think Christian life is all about, is this hamster wheel of exhaustion, trying to fix yourself and change your behavior. Here's what I think might be missing. The cross of Jesus Christ. Our Lord lifted up, dying for the sins of the world. Because what we're gonna see today in our chapter, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, what you and I are gonna see is that what Jesus, our savior, offers to us from that cross is a life so wonderfully different than the life that Samuel Johnson knew. And perhaps than the life that you think being a Christian is all about. What we're gonna find is it is wonderfully different. So I'm gonna show you four things. I want us to see what is offered to us by our Savior lifted up on the cross. Four things, all right? First of all, you are offered forgiveness. You're offered courage, comfort, and finality. Okay, forgiveness, courage, comfort, finality. Let's look at those. Let's start with forgiveness. We're starting in verse 16. Let's read it again. John 19, 16. Goes like this. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Pastor Mark has been showing us in the past couple of weeks the, the sheer irony at play in this statement about Jesus as the king of the Jews, right? Um, and here it is, pinned to the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The irony is that they are putting this up to mock him. <laughs> king of the Jews, look at him, he's dying, right? The irony is that he really is the king of the Jews. The irony actually is further than that. He's more than that. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is what John has been pressing to us through the whole gospel. From the very beginning, he said, in the beginning, before everything was made, was the word, this word being Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And he was with God and he was God. And he took on flesh and dwelt among us. This Jesus is truly, says John, the living God himself. And so what we have in this story actually ought to shock us. You're saying, John, that Jesus, the, the son of God, who raised people from the dead, who fed thousands with measly loaves and fish, this Jesus, son of God, walks up a hill carrying a beam it would have been the cross beam, just the one that he would carry on his shoulders up the hill. Carries it up to his own crucifixion. He's nailed to a cross, lifted up for people to mock and shame and jeer at. And eventually, as the story goes, he breathes his last and he dies. You're telling me the son of God did this. Why? Throughout the book of John, the author has, has stepped away sometimes to give us a little bit of insight to what's going on. He'll say something, Jesus will say some teaching about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and bearing fruit. And, and the author will step back and say, Jesus was saying this to indicate what kind of death he was gonna die. He, he kind of gives us a little interpretation so we can understand what's going on. 
He doesn't do that here. He doesn't tell us what's going on. He doesn't tell us what, what is really at play. And I think it's because it was pretty evident to his readers. But because I don't want to assume that it's evident to us, I want us to make sense. What is it that Jesus is doing here? And it is this, hear me clearly. Jesus, the son of God, is dying on the cross to pay the price of your salvation so that by faith in him, you might have all of your sins forgiven and you might receive eternal life, that you might come to know and enjoy a living relationship with the living God. That's why the son of God dies on the cross. But why is that the price? Why is that the price for your salvation, for my salvation? Let me, let me give you just a few verses that help us make sense of this. You'll know a few of these. Romans 3.23, I'm sure you've heard it many times. Perhaps this is the first time though. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's an exhaustive statement. All have sinned, Everybody, every human being, apart from one, Jesus Christ. Every person in this room, every person outside these doors has sinned. And what sin is, is not simply some, some misbehavior you have in your past. You look back and say, oh, that's it. That's where I done screwed up. Shoot. It's not, it's not simply that. But the scriptures teach us that sin is something so much more sinister and so much deeper than simply our behavior. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gets up and he says, listen, you've heard it said, guys, don't murder people. Good rule. Um, when I, what, what I'm gonna say to you is when you're angry with someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Jesus takes the law and he says, listen, it's not simply the behavior, it's the intent of your heart. Time and time and time again, scripture will teach us that our problem is not simply that we do bad things. It's that our very hearts are bent and turned and we have intentions that are apart from God's good plan. We have desires and affections. We look at this world and we love what we think we can get out of it. We wanna wring it dry of all the pleasures and all the experiences. This is a world for us to use for our own gain when we leave God in the, in the dust. And Romans 6, 23 Easy to remember, the 323 to 623. Romans 623, the wages of sin is death. So if all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, well, here's, here is the judgment on your shoulders. That because all of us have sinned, all of us deserve death. And this isn't something new to the New Testament. This is something that comes out of nowhere. This is actually something... That's, that showed up in the very, very, very beginning. So let me remind you, Genesis chapter two, chapter two, at the very beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden, and he says, listen, eat the fruit of every tree. Look around, grab it, eat it, love it, enjoy it. One tree, though, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, what does he say? You will surely die. So it's no different God has been abundantly, thoroughly, wonderfully clear from the very beginning. This is the cost of sin. It's death. And what happens, right? Adam and Eve stand at that, at that tree and the devil comes and tempts them and says, listen, come on, did he really say? No, he, you surely won't die. And they reach out, they grab it and they eat it. But what happens? Do they die? On the one hand, yes, there's a, a spiritual death that happens. The New Testament teaches that, that our, our problem is actually we need to be made alive. <laughs> We're dead on the inside. But they, they should have died. Like they should have died, died. But they didn't. So let me show you one verse that's wonderfully placed in Genesis chapter three. 
about what Jesus comes to do on the cross. And it says this, Romans 3, sorry, Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So they were supposed to die. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. They don't die. But something dies. How do these skins show up? Where do they come from? An animal had to die. So they should have died. It dies and its skins get taken and they cover the nakedness and the shame and the guilt of Adam and Eve. God gives it to them to cover them. What does this have to do with Jesus? At the cross, the son of God dies where you should die his death in your place and his robes, just like the skins of that animal go to cover Adam and Eve, his righteous robes, his righteous life comes to cover over our nakedness, our shame, our guilt, so that when the living God comes to look at you and me, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he does not see our nakedness, our shame, our sin, our misbehaviors, our, our malintents, our, our terrible thought life. He doesn't see that. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And he robes that righteousness over your shoulders so that from today or whatever day, by God's grace, you trusted in Jesus, from that day forward to eternity, you wear his righteousness, not your own, his. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. It's in Isaiah. <laughs> it's all over the scriptures. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is why it had to be the son of God who died for you. It couldn't just be any, any person because your, your death was paid, but what you wear is his righteous life, his perfect righteousness, so that you and I can forevermore stand in the presence of our living God and know him just as his son has eternally known him. We can call him father. Christ is now our brother and the spirit lives in us to testify that this is true. At the cross of Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of your sins and the fullness of life offered to you in our Savior. So let me pin a couple of verses to your heart, okay? Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by trusting in this Savior who died for you, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think a lot of Christians tend to struggle with this a sense that God just isn't altogether all that happy with me. I know we're all good, right? Like, like you, you go up to a friend who you've wronged and you say, hey, I'm sorry. And he says, all good, no biggie. And I think we maybe have that sense about our relationship with our father. It's, you know, we come to him, he say, it's all good, no biggie. But you know, really underneath that is still this kind of frustration of why couldn't you pull yourself together? Come on. No, the, the kind of peace we're talking about is the kind of peace that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, has had with his father forever. Imagine that kind of peace, the kind of peace that is the peace of a family made whole, the peace of a father loving his son and the son loving his father. That is the peace that you and I receive 
Let me give you another one. Romans 8, verse 1. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing left. All the condemnation that could and should have been poured out on your shoulders went down on another one's shoulders. It came down on Christ. There's just none left. There's no condemnation hiding behind his back. He's got his sword thinking (laughs) when they turn. No, there's nothing. There is no ill will in God toward you if you've put your faith in Jesus. There's no condemnation. So Martin Luther uh, is famous for having sparked the Protestant Reformation. Um, And he was a fierce, fierce defender of the gospel of grace. That you and I, not by, by earning, not by effort, not by by cleaning up our lives, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone are saved by the grace of God. He was a fierce defender of it. And yet he would say that one of his greatest struggles was that he found it difficult to believe that God was good, that God was really gracious. And and yet he preached this gospel of grace he struggled to believe it. And in those days, he would, he would kind of find himself in a bit of a funk. And he'd just sit in his house in this despair in his soul, this sense that God's not all that happy with me. I'm a screw up. I don't know. Am I saved? I don't know. And he would find himself just depressed sitting in, in his home. And what he would do is he would take a knife and to his, his wife's great displeasure, he would take that knife and he would carve scripture into the furniture in his living room. Scripture like this, Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason he did that was to remind himself that I don't have peace with God because of how I'm feeling right now. I don't have peace with God because I've cleaned myself up. And on the other side, I am not at odds with God just because I feel like I am right now. The truth of whether or not I'm at peace with God is dependent on whether or not God says so. And he has said so. The truth about whether or not I am condemned by God or not condemned is whether or not he says so. And does he not say so? In Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He would carve it into the furniture and remind himself, this truth of my salvation, of my peace, of my freedom is outside of me. I don't go looking inside to see if I'm really saved, do I measure up? I don't do that, that's foolish. I need to look outside and see, does God say? And he does. By the grace of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, the son of God dying for you, you have by faith in him, peace, peace. So first of all, at the cross of Jesus, we find the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, for you and me, there is courage at the cross of Jesus. Let's carry on, John 19, 23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's all these soldiers at his feet doing what what is quite normal at a crucifixion scene. They would would kind of trade around the, the clothing of the 
the criminal. And they find this tunic that's seamless, um, which was, a, this was an undergarment. It would be what would be worn closest to the skin. And the fact that it's seamless kind of meant that it was a bit more of a, of a nicer piece of clothing. It wasn't, wasn't all that common that you'd have a seamless piece. And so they decide, let's not rip it up. Let's, let's cast lots. Let's decide who's going to get it that way. And what the text is telling us is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is hanging on the cross at his weakest in every human definition. He's at his weakest. And there at the foot of the cross are soldiers gambling over his clothes. And that was exactly as he had planned it from before the beginning of time. (laughs) Exactly as he said it would be in the Old Testament. Even there on that cross, he was totally and utterly in control of the situation around him, down to the finest details of guys throwing dice, casting lots to figure out who's gonna get this tunic. And this is a, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 22, 16 to 18. This is David saying, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they've pierced my hands and feet. Huh? I can count all my bones, They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is hundreds of years prior. So Jesus, the son of God on the cross is completely and utterly in control of even the finest details at his feet. Where's where's the courage in that for you and me? What does that that have to do with us? Well, it means means this, (laughs) that the Jesus that you and I see, our savior, who dies to forgive your sins, obviously, because he loves you so much. He's also the one who rules over all the details on this planet, down to the casting of dice. Does that not mean that your savior in heaven, because this Jesus, you know he dies, but he's not, he's not gonna stay dead. Three days later, he comes up out of that grave. He ascends to the right hand of his father. That's where he is right now alive. And he's reigning over all the details. The same Jesus in control of all the details surrounding even your frustrations and struggles and challenges, all the details of your life. So uh, our our little son, Ozzy, is is 11 months old now, which means that he's he's at a good size to carry around because... He's small enough that he can do all sorts of things and I still got him. Uh, But he's also an adventure maniac. Um, Put him down and you look away for a microsecond and he's found everything that we didn't know we had in our house. He's gone. But when I carry him out in public and we'll go to a grocery store or go to a restaurant and I'll just be holding him or every now and then I'll kind of seat him on a high table and he'll just kind of look around. When he sees something that catches his eye and he thinks to himself, nothing else in the world matters except that right now he will leap and lurch right out of my arms to try and go and get it. He's like, I don't care. I don't care whatever's gonna happen. I'm going for it. That's mine, right? And he goes. If he knew what kind of danger he was in by doing that kind of thing, he could fall, crack his noggin, horrible things. Dad would look terrible. And yet he still does it. Why does he do it? Why is he so willing to risk his life at every turn just just because of that shiny thing? It's not worth it. Why does he do it? because his experience has taught him that every time he does it, dad's got him or mom's got him or whoever else is holding them responsibly has got him. 
And one day, one day he'll grow up and he won't be big, he won't be small enough for me to do that. It just comes a point where it's awkward. But right now he's at that size. Do you not realize that you, you and your life, compared to the glory and the grandness and the greatness of our living God, you're quite small. You're, you're kind of perfect size to kind of hold into the arms. And no matter which way you try to leap and lurch and yank, there's nothing you can do to get out of his grip. What kind of courage should that fill us with? There are, there are an innumerable number of decisions you have to make almost every day. There are major decisions you have to make quite often. Do I go this? Do I do this? Do I buy that? Do I not buy that? What do I do? All sorts of major and small decisions you have to make in your life. And I think it is such, such a sad reality that for so many Christians, I think we tend to tremble in uncertainty about life. Do I make the right decision? Do I do this? Do I, ah, what do I do? I don't know, I don't know. What kind of courage should you not have? Should you have because the living God who loves you enough that his son would die on a cross and even this son is looking down and seeing every little detail being played out exactly as he intends it. What kind of courage ought that to fill you with? You have no reason to fear. You have a great heavenly father. You have a great savior who died for you, who is in complete control. Do not be afraid. Be of great courage. Courage is offered to you and me at the foot of the cross. So is comfort. Comfort at the cross of Jesus. So let's carry on. John 19, 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even as Jesus, the savior of the world, the son of God hangs on this cross and is at his greatest despair and suffering physically, spiritually, emotionally, he looks down in his final breaths and he sees his mom standing with some other women all of whom seem to be named Mary. It's like the Ezra of its day. Everybody named their kids Mary. And she's standing there, and he knows that his mom, who gave birth to him, who held him, who hold, held him as he lurched out of her arms, her child is dying on a cross in front of her eyes. Her eldest son and we don't know the story about Joseph, her husband, but he, he's disappeared for a while. It's, it's generally assumed that he, he's passed away and she's become a widow. But regardless, she's alone. And the eldest son would have the duty of caring for his parents as they aged, right? There was no meno home. There was no Tabor place. That would have been bougie in those days for what they got. And it was, it was very difficult for, for women to make money in those days. So, so if she didn't have her oldest son, that was her greatest insurance policy. <laughs> and he looks down and he knows that she will have a struggle, that she won't have much. And his heart goes out to her. He is filled with compassion and tenderness to his mom. 
And he looks and he sees the disciple next to him, next to her, and he says to, to his mom, woman, behold your son. That, woman, that word woman didn't have any kind of disrespect in it in those days. Behold your son. And disciple, son, behold your mom. Take care of her. Jesus shows us on the cross the kind of heart our Savior has toward his people, toward his mom. And that's particularly relevant to you and me because in Matthew, Jesus tells us some really great truth. And there's a story in Matthew 12 that goes like this, verse 46 and 12. He says, while he was still, while Jesus is speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers show up. They stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here are my mother and brothers and sisters. Here is my family. This is my family. So when you and I see the heart of Jesus go out to his mom, what you and I can see, what we do see, is the heart of a savior, the heart of our living God that goes out to his family, to those he loves. Jesus is not apathetic or unaware or disinterested in your struggles. He's not at all aloof to your sufferings, to whatever loss you've experienced to the grief that you're bearing. He's not distant saying <laughs> small things compared to what I'm dealing. He's not. He was suffering on the cross for the sins of the world and he cared about his mom. He cares with great, loving, tender compassion about you, his family. And he will, by the power of his spirit, by the use of his church, his people, and by the orchestrating of all things as he can do, he will take care of you. It may not be exactly how you dream and wish and hope, but you can know with all certainty that his heart is compassionate and tender to you, his family. There's comfort at the cross for you and me. Lastly, there is finality. John 19, 28 to 30, we'll wrap up the text. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All of the comfort and the courage and the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins is wrapped up in those three words. It is finished. What is he saying? All that was required of me to rescue my people from their sins that they might have eternal life, that they might be rescued, delivered, and forevermore, that they might be mine. Everything that was required and necessary is done. It is is finished. There is nothing more that you and I need to add to the work of Jesus Christ. It's not as though he got us halfway and said, all right, prove it, prove it. He didn't do that. He went all the way. He took all your sin. He gave you all his righteousness. It 
is finished. So rather than Samuel Johnson, like Samuel Johnson, who spent his life looking in on himself and looking back and feeling like, you, I'm not measuring up. I just can't seem to figure myself out. Maybe, do I have everlasting life? I don't know. Rather than looking at yourself and your behavior, you and I ought to turn our eyes to the cross of Jesus and see all of it done. All of it finished. And receive from him the assurance of our forgiveness, the courage and the comfort of knowing him as our savior. It is finished. So do not spend your life turning your eyes in on yourself. This is our temptation. We all do it all the time. We turn in on ourselves and we look for things we're hoping to find. Don't let your eyes turn in on yourself and wonder, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Do I have enough faith down in that little empty hollow jar of faith? If you do that, you will always be disappointed. And you will live that frustrating, exhausting, discouraging kind of Christian life that you were not meant to live. But turn your eyes to Jesus Christ and find in him the fullness of life, the forgiveness of your sins, the granting of his righteousness to cover you over, and the knowledge that this God is your God and you are his people and he will lead you and he will love you. There is finality at the cross of Jesus Christ. Know it, see it, and enjoy it. Let me pray. Father, we magnify you tonight and, and we thank you. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only son to live and die and come back from the grave so that we might know the full forgiveness of our sins that we might receive through him the fullness of eternal life, which is to know you, to be able to call you father, to call Christ our brother and our friend and to have your spirit dwell in us as the guarantee of our inheritance that when our savior returns, or when we pass on, we will know the fullness of life in your presence. God, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.